Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Over at Hop Take, my weekly column about the beer industry, I write a fair amount about the vessels beer comes in. Packaging, as the industry calls it. But we don't talk too much about beer's various packages here, Taplines listener, and for good reason. It's pretty boring material for oral history. <laughs> Long necks, stovepipes, pony kegs. These are fun things to say, but not so much to discuss at length, you know. Which is why we've made it 34 whole episodes without dedicating a single one to an examination of a specific beer container. But this, listener, this is episode 35, and it's time to go where no Vine Pair podcast about modern beer history has gone before. In the mid-70s, as the light beer wars were starting to heat up, a family-run brewery in western New York called FX Matt, one of the nation's oldest and still running to this very day, came up with a wild new packaging format for its beer. It was bold. It was bizarre. It was balls. Big, translucent plastic spheres full of 5.16 gallons of Matt's premium lager. Part keg party, part party trick, FX Matt's beer balls were all the rage in the 80s and soon drew competition from local rivals and national heavyweights alike. Joining Tapline today to talk about beer balls and so much more is fourth-generation Matt and president of the brewery that bears his family's name, Fred Matt himself. Stick around, listener, because this one's about to get rolling. Oof, ball jokes. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's FX Matt president Fred Matt. It's Nat's premium lager. It's the rise and fall of the beer ball. And it's all right here right now on Vine Pairs Tap Lines. You know, listener, uh, these days, everyone's talking about spheres. Uh, you know, out in Las Vegas, they got a big they got a big sphere that everyone's all buzzing about. It's a, like a big IMAX theater. It's a, it's a concert venue. It's something. But we're not talking about the Vegas sphere today. In fact, we're not even talking about spheres per se. We're talking about balls, beer balls. And to take us down memory, to roll us down memory lane, uh, we tapped the one and only Fred Matt of FX Matt Brewing uh, to join us today to talk about the rise and and fall, or uh, or uh, and maybe you know maybe someday rise again. We don't know of the beer ball, this vessel um, that really I think defined a moment in sort of the second half of the 20th century, uh, right as the 20th century was coming to a close, uh, this this bizarre vessel that people loved, uh, and it all started uh, in upstate New York at the brewery called FX Matt. Fred, thank you so much for joining us today on Taplines. Psyched to be here. These are fun. We're talking beer balls, man. So uh, yeah. bef- before, we, before we get into how this um, sort of, you know, inimitable uh, uh, package came to be um, because it was really unusual in the beer business at the time. We haven't really seen too much like it since. Let's talk a little bit about FX Matt for uh, listeners who may not be familiar with that name. They are certainly familiar with other names uh, that FX Matt puts out into the marketplace. Tell listeners uh, who might not be apprised um, what FX Matt uh, is all about. 
Yeah, so FX Matt is uh, was my great grandfather, uh, my father also. So my great grandfather emigrated from Germany, uh, a little town called Eagle Schlott, which is in the Black Forest in 1878. Uh, came to uh, upstate New York because it reminded him of the Black Forest, and really left Germany because the, with the caste system, so to speak. His family was a farming, laboring family, and he was going to be destined to be that. And he wanted more. So came to Utica, uh, did a leveraged buyout of the brewery. And um, so we we made uh, basically craft beer from 1888 to Prohibition. Uh, during Prohibition, we made a line of beers called – or. Uh, soft drinks called Utica Club yeah. and near beer, which we put on the side of the can, do not add yeast or you create alcohol. <laughs> uh, so we basically told you what to do. And then coming out of uh, Prohibition, Utica Club brand had done so well that we did the Utica Club brand. Utica Club exploded and uh, we had Jonathan Winters, the famous comedian, did all our talking steins. And then we came out with a product called Matt's Premium uh, in the 60s, which really did exceedingly well as well. Uh, then the, the 70s, the beer ball. Uh, the 80s became kind of tough for regional breweries. And my father got us into contract production. So some of the cool things is almost anybody on the East Coast in craft has either worked with us or does work with us. Or will so, work with San, you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or will. <laughs> You know, we started with New Amsterdam, Matthew Reich. We did Dock Street, Old Hyrick, Sam Adams until uh, Jim bought his breweries. Um, Blue Moon started here as a brand. That's right. So uh, the Spike Seltzer's categories, you know it today, started here. Uh, our big brands today are Saranac Beer, Saranac Soft Drinks, Utica Club, which I always say has become so bogus it's hip. Uh, we do Kingfisher, Mackenzie Cider. A uh, product called Right Coast, which is a spirit. And then we have a whole line of contract production. So today, about 50% of our business is, is our contract partners and 50% is our, our own brands. I think what makes us really unique in that space is that, you know, because we launch brands all the time and we work with distributors, retailers, consumers, we know what it's like to, you know, have a product out in the market. And so, I think we're more sensitive with our customers when they have a problem in that they need beer quickly or they need their product quickly. We turn on a dime for them because, you know, empty shelves are empty shelves and no one likes them. But since we know what it's like to have an empty shelf, we don't like anybody else to have an empty shelf. So yeah. today we're in, you know, beer, uh, distilled spirits, wine in cans, non-alcoholic seltzers, seltzers. Um, so we do really do the gamut. Anything but dairy we're doing. And uh, diversification has been very good for us because, you know, in the old days where you're just beer, um, life can get a little tough. And, you know, right even right now, you know, you see sure. beer. Sure. Uh, beer is, I think beer will come back. But I think, you know, in the craft category, we've we've put too many different brands out there without any innovation. And um, the dilemma with that is the consumer gets confused because there's too many things out there. Yeah, a glut of, uh, of skews. I mean, in the craft beer industry, for the last, whatever, seven, eight, nine years, 
there's been talk of, oh, skewmageddon, right? Like, is there just too much going on in this space? I think in more recent years, we've seen that borne out. And I think the answer, I don't know that anyone would really argue uh, the case that, you know, uh, there isn't, you know, too much, uh, chaos going on in the market. I think, and I think, you know, you see, you see smart breweries kind of getting a little bit more narrow, getting a little bit more dialed in on their product. Yeah. Your point is yeah. well taken, Fred. Uh, one of the things I think it's worth noting about FX Matt, or really just emphasizing about FX Matt for listeners who don't know is like, this is a, age, uh, an aged institution of the American brewing landscape. And as Fred noted, and thank you for the backstory there, um, it's, it's both producing its own brands and contract brewing. It's not completely unusual to see something like that, but at the scale that FX Matt does it, it's in kind of a league of its own. It, it fills a very unique spot in the marketplace. So I think that's worth listeners just kind of keeping in the back of your head as we talk about the product innovations that uh, that FX Matt pursued and specifically the product in- innovation of the beer ball because um, I really do think that it's, it's sort of uh, uh, kind of peerless in this space in terms of its size uh, the volume you guys do, um, and sort of the, the one foot in, you know, owned and operated the one foot in contract. So, yeah. And the thing I build on that is that we have been around 135 years, uh, I'm fourth generation to run the company and we're a family. Yeah. Uh, and what I think is cool is that probably, you know, 135 years in a family that still gets along, the success rate's about 1%. So, <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> Good for you guys. Good for you guys. All right, Fred, uh, as is tradition here on Tap Lines, you know, this is a history podcast, so we got to do a little time travel. Uh, we got the Tap Lines time machine, and I like to ask the guests to set the date that we scroll back to. We're talking beer balls. Uh, where does the beer ball story begin? Approximately what year? When does this thing come to be? Uh, about 19, 1975. Okay. My uncle Kemper Matt, who uh, was head of sales, vice president of sales, saw a a plastic sphere uh, that was built by uh, or made by Johnson Enterprises, and he said, you know, that'd be a pretty cool you know package for beer. And uh, so he came back. Actually, Utica Club was the first beer ball, um, and then we switched to Matt's Premium pretty quickly, but. 1975, I'd say maybe 74, uh, he came up with the idea and it was it was a fantastic idea, which I like to say that we sold 10 million beer balls before, you know, Genesee, Coors, Bud, anybody even noticed it. They jumped on it. And, yeah, yeah. yeah and, we were, and they did jump on it late, but, but they jumped on <laughs> it. Um, what was the beer ball? Like the initial beer ball, Fred, uh, for, for listeners who are too yeah. young to remember this from, you know, when it was in the marketplace or maybe aren't close to Google and can't quickly Google it to take a look at this thing. Can you describe what this vessel actually was? Yep. So a beer ball was a really cool package. It was a round sphere. Uh, It was five and a six gallons, which was basically 55, 12 ounce glasses of beer. Mm. Um, And it came in a square box, which was covered you, what you do is you'd open the box, pour glass around the, the sphere, close the box, and then you had a ice. pump. Ice around the uh, sphere. Put right? ice yeah, around yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then put this pump in that you bought for 7 or $8 that you could keep and keep using. And then you just pumped it. And just you could take it any place. It could be college campuses. It could be on terraces. It could be beaches, in your car, you know, 
drinking and driving was not necessarily legal, but everybody did it. It was much um, more prominent. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. If you got pulled over by a, a policeman, then they'd either, you know, have someone else drive, they'd follow you home, or just say, keep going. Wow. Um, Different so era. It was, <laughs> yeah. And so one of the things I always like to tell the change in times is that in 1978, uh, one of our summer jobs, my myself, two of my brothers, and some neighborhood kids was we did the beer ball line, and we'd take a beer ball home at night. We'd be out on the terrace, so we'd drink the beer ball. Mind you, it's fifty five glasses, so it's you a, might it's have a solid serving there. Fred. Yeah, yeah, you might have <laughs> six or seven guys, eight guys drink it, and we'd finish the beer ball. We'd get my dad's car keys. And we'd be going out to the bars. It's now, you know, call it nine o'clock at night. And my dad would say, hey, don't you guys want some roadies? And so we'd go down to the cellar and get a 12-pack of beer and come back up, grab his keys and get in the car and my drive. God, man. A different era. No kidding. And, and uh, yeah. I, I guess, there, you know, you, you had a different, you had a different uh, young drinking career than I think Many, you know, when you come yeah. from a storied brewing family like the Matt family, I suppose uh, maybe that's a little bit different uh, of, of an experience than than certainly than I had. And I bet a lot of our listeners had. OK, so the beer ball comes around 1974, 1975. Your uncle, Kemper Matt, uh, lays out. What, what is Johnson Industries? What is it like a fabricator in the area? Where, where it did, was a they made these plastic uh, spheres mm. and uh they had another business. I can't remember what it was, but that was that was a pretty big business for them. They were in the plastics, and ultimately, beer balls got so big for us that they sw- they we bought a big, basically a a sphere blowing machine, and so you got a <laughs> you literally got like a test tube, plastic yeah. test tube. You'd put it in the thing and blow up the beer ball, uh, roll off, and then we we'd fill it. So. Do you have any idea what that original one was used for? Was it just like for some sort of project or it had nothing to do with the beer industry, in other words? No. Yeah. No. He just and I don't, he, he I, laid I eyes on it. I honestly don't this know. I'll have to ask my <laughs> Uncle Kemper is that the, uh, they might have actually designed it for us because it had, you know, it had a, I think we bought a mold and they were a plastics company and he basically had them make the mold and right. make it for us. Because it was a real thick plastic originally. It was a white opaque beer ball. So it, it um, had to be, right? Otherwise it would crack in the box yeah, and exactly. you know, it's got a mess here. Okay, so the beer ball comes around 1975 or so. Uh, you sold, Timmy, you, you, you mentioned just a moment ago, you feel like you sold maybe 10 million of them before all the other brewers finally caught on that this thing was a trend. Let's talk a little bit about the reception in the marketplace, though. I mean, this is uh, – what are people what – what are the dominant packages at this point? Were 40s around at this point or not so much uh, yet? Not so much yet. The uh, – you know, it's basically a lot of uh, what I call non-tippers, the mm. – uh, that yeah, sure. stubby bottle. I like um, that. I've never heard that term before. <laughs> yeah, so you had – they're earthquake-proof, as we used to say. Um, so you had those. You didn't have a lot of cans. And these sure. beer balls would go right in the, you know, in the wells of the cooler or, you know, some put them in the back of the cooler, but they'd go in the wells of the cooler. So they were very shoppable um, and you just had to keep them in the cooler and then ice them. So there was, you know, one, it, kegs were a lot bigger then. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, instead of getting a keg, which had to be pre-ordered, it was a pain in the ass. You got to be strong to move it around. Yeah. 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 And you got a beer ball you could grab and go. 
And the other thing I always say when people say, how come they don't come back is that, you know, when you go to a party today, you know, there's import, there's craft, there's mainstream light, there's, you know, you'll have teas, you'll have everything. Wine-based uh, yeah. fruit punch. Yeah, yeah right. The whole exactly. gamut. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure, sure. And in those days, you went to a party, you had one beer. Right. And that was all you had. <laughs> right. Uh, 55 glasses of Utica Club is what you yeah. get at a party. And if you yeah. don't like that, well, there's 55 glasses of uh, Matt Premium. <laughs> right, exactly. That was yeah. it. Yeah. So, and people weren't as picky about it. I mean, it was like beer was beer and beer, everybody sure. loved beer. So you didn't deal with everybody saying, I don't like beer. I never even heard people say they didn't like beer. Yeah, yeah. They weren't coming to they they knew better than to come uh, to parties at the madhouse. Uh that would be poor for or at least not to say something like that <laughs> in front of the Matt family. Okay, so so the beer ball uh it hits the scene. As you mentioned, it's shoppable. There's not a whole lot because mini kegs, like ponies, stuff like that, was not available no. yet, right? No. So you basically the American drinking public, if they're going to the grocery store, they can get a uh, six pack, a 12 pack. Were people doing 30 racks back? Not really because no, cans were 20, not. Yeah, 24, yeah. 6, 12. Sure, sure. Cans and, weren't, you know, bottles were probably 70, 80% of the volume. Yeah, most of the market. Because yeah. the Coors Brewing Company was innovating around aluminum cans at this time. But was this still, and I don't mean to, uh, uh, this is not. I hope this isn't ageist, Fred. Don't. Ma- I'm not trying to pick on you. Were people still popping the the can with like a with a can key, or did it had the pop tab been in, like rolled out um, yet? Like when did that come around? You know, I don't know. I I don't. I certainly saw you know the can opener once, but I'm pretty yeah, sure yeah, all yeah. my life was the pop tab. The, the pop tab. Yeah, yeah. But the point I was trying to make is that like the volume that is available to the American drinker. At the grocery store without going through the extra hurdles of going, you know, of ordering a keg um, is pretty limited unless yeah. you've got the something like a beer ball product. So it's right. filling a niche in the market that yeah. especially at the time, you know, in, in the in the late 70s, 80s, as you described, people just wanted to drink one specific kind of beer. They hadn't their right. eyes hadn't been open to the, you know, the broad flavor array that the craft brewing industry would eventually introduce to the American palate. And so, like, yeah, man, 55 glasses of beer. This is a good deal. I can put ice right in the thing. This is a no-brainer. How did it yeah. sell? So uh, one thing I just add on the beer ball, you Please. know, in today's world, it was it was disruptive. Yeah. I mean, it just became, you know, if you went to a party, you brought a beer ball. You didn't bring cases of beer. You just bought a beer ball. And, and in today's were... world, if you think about it, from a sustainability standpoint, it was a lot better. Sure, um, sure. The thing literally exploded immediately. It was <laughs> well, not literally. These balls were not exploding, listener. No, <laughs> no. But my uh, my uncle Kemper tells a story of going to see a chain, and you know, having a beer ball and having it in front of his knees in the guy's desk, and the guy kept on looking over the desk and what is this thing? Yeah, yeah. And he finally put it up, tapped it, and gave the guy a beer. And it was like, just put it in the store. Um, <laughs> Back so the truck it, up. Yeah. You know, and it was a thing that, you know, it just, you know, when you get a product and we've had them, a lot of other of our competitors added, when you get a product that, you know, delights the customer and wows them, it just, boom. And, you know, for all of us in marketing and sales, the objective is 
delight your customer, give them something that they really want that fills a need, yep. and you'll, you'll do well. Yep. And it really did fill a need because, again, listener, you got to remember, kegs were bigger and burlier then. They were heavier. And the beer ball weighed, what, like a third as much, Fred? What do you think? Yeah, so it Ish. probably weighed yeah. uh, 30 pounds. Yeah, so very portable. Very yeah. able to move around. Hey, the tap... Uh, was that like a, it was not a proper tap like you would tap a keg with, was it? Or was it? Uh, uh no, it was a two-prong tap. Yeah. There was a short thing and then a long thing. And then there was a pump on top of it. Gotcha. Um, uh, and it was great because, you know, once you bought the tap, you know, it's like having a razor blade or yeah, right. razor blade handle. You a just handle, keep yeah. buying the razor. Yeah. You know, we just kept selling the beer balls and you could buy a tap if you needed. If, you know, some of us that... Didn't want to spend the seven dollars. Just get a screwdriver, pop the top, put the thing, and <laughs> pop the top. And then you'd either drink it that way, or you'd cut a hole and have like a punch bowl and just scoop the beers out. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, like a scorpion bowl full of uh, yeah, a exactly. Yucca Club. Yeah, no, yeah. or like the uh, like the uh, eggnog uh, pitcher yeah. in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation that he dips yep. into. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's an innovation. No, your point about. I, disruption I think is like well-made also Fred because like there's this idea or like the, you know you hear a lot of in the beverage alcohol industry today you're a lot about like you know oh white space innovation like we're we need to like figure out where you know no one's going right and it's like and, and then go develop a product to fit like a niche that you know doesn't even exist yet and, and I think you know there's some merit to that there's some explan you know some examples of that having success but I like the the idea that like disruption doesn't always have to, you know, kind of be that big new reinvent the wheel type of thing. It's more like, well, people like the beer. People yeah. need, you know, like this has a there's a real need that we're filling here. Uh, yeah. What if we just put it in this in this uh, in this globe and called it a day? No, you're you're yeah. right on there. So yeah, just do it better. Yeah, right. Just do it better. Exactly. So it starts selling like hotcakes. Uh, the beer's flying off the shelves. Um, around when, in your recollection, does the rest of the beer industry catch wise? I'd say probably around 1986, maybe 87. Mid 80s or so. Yeah, which is really interesting because, you know, when you do a product today that catches fire, You'll have competitors in three, three months, six months. Sure. You know, we came out with Saranac Trail Mix. I don't think we had a competitor for like three years. Wow. And if you did, you know, that was the first mix pack in the, in the you know, as far as beer, that was the first mix pack ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that thing, you know, was like wildfire. We didn't have a competitor. Yeah. And, and I remember Costco in Pentagon City did 6,000 cases a year just out of that one store. Whoa. I mean, it was unbelievable. But it's, you know, today you do something that's cool, you're going to have so many competitors on your back in a heartbeat. Sure, sure. And obviously, like, part of that is just the nature of a more crowded space. Right. For, you know, more crowded beer industry than it was even, you know, 20 years ago, let alone 40. Um, but at the time that we're, we're talking about in – uh, when the beer ball came along in the mid seventies and then when the rest of the, you know, the rest of the competition finally kind of rolled out their own clones of it or their own knockoffs of it in the mid eighties. Um, these were not, as you mentioned earlier, these were not the salad days for 
certainly not for uh, American beer. I suppose imports had a bit of their day in the sun in the 80s. But, like, you know, what was going on in the broader beer industry during this era, Fred? And especially not just in general, but also at FX Matt. Tell us a little bit about how the beer ball, you know, sort of arrives and what its milieu is. Yeah, so the beer ball, you know, was a welcome sales item at the time. Yeah. I would say that the the late 70s, 80s were very rough for the regional breweries. And America got down to something like, I think it was maybe 40 breweries left in the country. Whoa. And, you know, us, we and Yangling were there, but, you know, all of us were, weren't doing so well. Um, and really what would turn the, the dial for all, you know, all of us that have, have been successful, again, in the beer business is really craft beer. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, I always said, you know, in those time periods, the game got to who could get to water first and call it beer. And <laughs> that's somewhat disparaging, but it was it's not really disparaging in that the, that's what the customer wanted. The customer wanted lighter, lighter, lighter. Yep. And light beer became close to 50% of the market. All, all the national companies were doing was putting a product out there that their customer base wanted and quite frankly, they did a great job. I mean, to, to to a beer that is that thin, that consistent quality. You may not likely like beers, but you know, for them, they are awesome brewers. Sure. And anybody that doesn't think those guys are good brewers doesn't know what they're talking about. Mm. We should worry when they want to come into a category, and when they do, it doesn't. It's not. It's not fun to play with them. Mm-hmm. But I think you know the pendulum went so far on no taste that it created an opportunity for taste. And yeah. that's where craft came in. And craft, you know, over the time really came and took, you know, we're about 12 or 13% of the market now. But, you know, during that building period, if you if you think about it, we had, you know, the explosion of craft really in kind of the late 80s and, you know, really the 90s. But then in 97, the uh, Sam Adams Dateline NBC where they- Infamous. They put, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I always said that that was a major company in the country that spent a lot of money on the networks that got them to do that, that expose. And I would say it was like, you know, you saw your business going like 100% growth, and the next day it dropped to like 10. Whoa. I mean, it was it was ridiculous. Just a brick wall. Uh, listener, just, yeah. to, just to clarify, Fred is referring to Anheuser-Busch. Um, there was a, and I said infamous, the reason I said that yeah. is it really was, um, there was a really, Legend. really damning uh, Dateline episode that uh, scrutinized Boston Beer Company's um, claims of being sort of a craft product by highlighting uh, uh, the fact that Jim Cook, uh, the the found the co-founder of Boston Beer Company, was contract brewing. Which contract brewing, not a bad word in 2023. The American consumer is much more educated about beer than certain. I mean, even 10 years ago, and certainly you know 30 years ago. Um, it seemed like this big, uh, uh, you know, like scandalous reveal, right, Fred? This yeah, was a big like deal were, for the whole industry. It was like yeah. you were hoodwinking the customer. Right, right. That that right. did not go over well. And there was a massive shakeout really kind of from the – and there was, you know, probably too many of us out there. There was a shakeout really kind of from 98 to, say, early 2000s. You know, kind of 2002, I think, is when beer – Crash started to take off Coming again. back around. But yeah, it was flat then, or down. Yeah. 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 And it's been explosive pretty much since then. There was a little bit of a shakeout, I'd say, in kind of 2011-ish. Um, but, you know, now I think you're definitely seeing 
some tough sledding for for a lot of our craft brethren. And, uh, you know, it, I would say it's not as fun in the craft category right now. Mm. The craft category will will remain. It's, you know, it's flavorful. People like it. It's just, I think we've gotten to a point where there's just too many choices. And, you know, I, it happens to me. I go into a situation and I get kind of, you know, cough cold. I go into the dark drugstore you're trying to buy something because you got a cough cold. And half the time I walk out, if I can't get the pharmacist, I walk out because I'm so confused on what I ought to buy. <laughs> yeah, and that you know that effect happens in the in the beer aisle just like anything else, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Point well taken, uh, Fred. So we talked about in the mid '80s. I wanted to go back. Uh, you know, you sort of like framed up the how craft was a key boon for the beer industry. Prior to that, you mentioned the light beer, uh, you know, boom, which is happening, if my memory serves correctly, right around the same time as the beer ball appears in the mid-70s. Yep. Listener, go back and check out our episodes with Maureen Ogle, uh, the historian and the author of uh, Ambitious Brew. We talk about the light beer wars. Miller Brewing Company gets a bunch of money from Philip Morris and, uh, and you know, rolls out the original light beer from Miller. And then eventually Anheuser-Busch and Coors Light are forced to respond. And that's a whole other story. Go check out those episodes. The beer ball uh, arrives during that era. And then in the mid-80s is when uh, the other big, you know, the big macros uh, take a moment, take a break from slugging it out with each other for shelf space and picking over Schlitz's bones uh, and uh, and say, hey, look at this beer ball thing. Look at, uh, yeah. look at what FX Matt's doing. Maybe we should do one of those. Tell us a little bit about, re recall, if you will, for yeah. us, when you guys first started noticing competitors move into the space and, and how, you know, what you're thinking about internally. What, you know, gosh, do we have to respond? How do we, hey, this is our thing. Hey, tell us a little bit about that. So I, I wasn't at the brewery in that time, but the, you know, I would say it was it was tough sledding and it was tough sledding for a couple of reasons is that breweries like ours would, were making really good, great quality beer mm. when you brought in Philip Morris which owned Miller and brought marketing to the game and they woke up Bud and Bud became a marketing company. You now have this wonderful marketing coming from these beer companies that had been more production oriented. We were production oriented. And so they just an onslaught of great advertising and, you know, we couldn't keep up. And so yeah. our way of, of keeping up was they'd take a price increase and we'd hold price. And the eighties really became known for, you know, price and quality. So as you dropped your price, we weren't necessarily cutting any any quality of ingredients, but we were cutting our price. So the perception is, well, that can't be as good because this beer is, is better. So like backfires um, so, in a way. Yeah. 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 So it, I, I would tell you, we went into a death spiral. And and so, yes, you had Coors Party Ball, Bud, I can't remember what it was. You had Genesee. Genesee had the same problems we had. And, you know, essentially our beer ball, which was the number one player, got crushed because you now had Coors and Buds. So add image to, you know, a brand that's kind of cutting its price back and right. becoming kind of a, I'd say, regional nicely. But it was almost like no man's land on price. Mm. And people went to the brands that were heavily advertised. And so, you know, that just started to decline. And what really hurt the beer balls for everybody ultimately was the cost of the cost of goods for the beer ball just became too high. So interesting, you know, where you were, you know, a beer ball in its heyday, we really, you could buy it for thirteen ninety nine to kind of fourteen ninety nine. 
But, you know, when it got over 1999 and was in the low 20s, people would say, well, hell, I'll, I'll just buy a case of beer. And then sure. if I don't use it or two cases of beer, if I don't use it, I still have the cases of beer versus I've tapped a keg or a beer ball. Yep. And now I can't use it. And right. So when people always ask me, you know, well, when's the beer ball coming back? You know, there's two things. One is it's not really cost effective anymore. And the second thing is, is that who's going to buy you know, two cases of beer and have a party that they're going to go through two cases of one product in a night right. is probably unlikely. And so uh, I don't think there's a beer ball market. I will tell you, our biggest posts are beer balls. Really? The question I get asked the most is beer balls. And we did a great <laughs> spoof on when they shot down the uh, the weather thing, the weather balloon, balloon of the Chinese. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we did a beer ball you know, floating over the brewery, and uh, that that got a tremendous number of posts. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, it was a great, great package, a great product for its time. I think I'd be surprised if it comes back again. Yeah. What did distributors think about it at the time? What was the, did, I mean, obviously they like it because it's a hot product, but like, was there, did they have to adjust the way they were handling and storing this stuff? Like where, you know, that was the great thing because it was a square box. Oh, right. You could just stack the boxes. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, you see a a guy rolling in cases into a convenience store to a grocery store, more often a convenience store because they got to go in the front or a bar restaurant. You know, they fit perfectly. I think you could get four or five of them on a, one of those, you know, little pa- uh, case trucks. Yep. And uh, they were easy to to stock in the shelves. They were easy to to roll in, and so uh, everybody liked it. Yeah, yeah. So Coors, Anheuser Busch. I think you mentioned Genesee. I had gone back and researched for this episode and, and watched some of the old Coors beer ball commercials. Uh, listener, you can go check those out on, on YouTube if you go search for them. Um, and they, it's a great tagline. I think it's like, uh, something along the lines of like, you, you can't have a party if you don't have a ball, something along that, which yeah. is great, right? Like this is, yeah. you get it. Um, I understand why that does well, but that sucks for FX Matt that doesn't have the, you know, the dough to go pay someone, you know, an ad agency in Chicago or in New York to do a bunch of jingles, to do a bunch of, you know, copywriting. Were you guys doing, did you guys try to compete? on ads at all do you remember yeah so yeah, yeah. you know what i was uh my dad did commercials from kind of 1979 to maybe 82 or three maybe not that long but yeah. um you know they were kind of lee iacocca like so chrysler organization chrysler cars sure uh, at the time chrysler was the bit one of the big three number three and hit bankruptcy and they brought in lee iacocca who had been running ford and Lee Iacocca did these great ads that, you know, if you don't like my car, basically, you can come bring it back and I'll put a five-year guarantee on it and all that. And so my dad just did these commercials that were, you know, all around the brewery and the beers we make, et cetera. Um, he became kind of a mini celebrity. I mean, you'd go with him and, you know, people would be like looking at him, looking at him and they are you FX? They recognize him. Say, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Or, you know, you'd go to a Syracuse Chiefs game in those days and he'd be sitting behind home plate and you'd have a line all the way up to the top mezzanine. And all he'd be doing is (laughs) signing things the whole time. 
which that's pretty great. I, I, I don't. He he was very gracious and did it well. I I don't ever think he liked it that much. Yeah, but, he's just um, trying to watch a ball game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, the curse of uh, beer ball celebrity, I suppose. Yeah. yeah exactly. But so, but but. Um, to my question, like, so FX Matt was advertising the beer ball product. Yes, we did have a beer ball ad. I don't, I, I know I've seen it. I just can't really remember it. Yeah, because I went, to, I tried to dig it up. I figured that it would exist, but I couldn't find one. Yeah. Um, but how widely was this available at its height, Fred? Uh, we, I know we shipped them to California. The Cape was huge. Way, huh? yeah. Florida was huge. So really, any water areas were big. I bet. And then. College campuses were big. Yeah. Um, and then just, you know, normal markets. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So. When does it end? When did Beer Ball, when did FX Matt stop producing Beer Well, balls? for us, um, so I came back here in 1989, and uh, we stopped making Beer Balls probably about a year or two after that. Yeah. And it just got where, you know, they were... They weren't selling that well, and the stores were taking them out of the main cooler and putting them in their back coolers, and it just it wasn't as accessible, and it just people weren't drinking you know one beer as much, and so it just was time to go. Because at that point in the late '80s, early '90s, at this point you start to see some glimmers of the craft brewing industry, right? You're starting to see the Sierra yep. Nevadas, the the Samuel Adams of the world, start make some inroads. You're also still at this point, if I'm not mistaken, uh, sort of in the in the green bottle foil label import uh, moment. You know, when Heineken is is red hot. Um, we talked to uh, uh, Philip Van Munching, uh, listener. You go check out those episodes uh, with uh, the son of uh, Leo Van Munching, who is the sort of I iconic importer of Heineken here in the United yeah. States. So imports had this, this big moment too. So people were still buying beer, right, Fred? But it wasn't yeah. necessarily a regional brand like a Utica club. It wasn't necessarily, you know, a, uh, um, uh, at volume, like the beer ball offered. So it was just kind of out, at that point, it sounds like maybe a little out of step with what the consumer was looking for at that point. Yeah. You had much more of the premiumization was starting, uh, you know, you bring up imports. Yeah. You know, Heineken was big. Beck's was big. You know, where we live in upstate New York, really from Albany to really to Michigan, mm. the Canadian breweries just crushed it. And Labatt's, you know, Molson, Moosehead. Mostly Molson and then Labatt's. Yep. Um, but, you know, Mol the Budweiser, which got pretty close to 50 share. And I would say from Albany to Buffalo, I don't think they ever cracked 30 share. Wow. Because the, the Canadians were so strong and the Canadian beers outsold, you know, Bud is the number one beer. Mm. But, you know, an interesting thing, when we launched Saranac, we bought Beck's bottles from New York City, used Beck's bottles. We cleaned them and then relabeled them, put Saranac in them, relabeled Get them and here. shipped them. Yeah. What? Yeah. Was that even? I mean, I don't mean to impugn your uh, your practices. Was that even legal? Were you even able to do yeah. that? Yeah. So so think about it. Those days, you had re every bar bottle was returnable. Deposit. Yeah. So, sure. Sure. So so they came in, in reusable cases, and they would hand. And them so yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> we got all the bottles back. We had we had uh, you know sanitized Sanitar cleaners, yeah. caustic, and cleaned them. You know, washers <laughs> to get soakers to get off the labels. And then we'd fill them. In fact, one of the things we did when uh, Mick Dry came up, which mm -hmm. Mick Dry was huge, came out and just went 
uh, like that. And so we did match special dry and we bought uh, Michelob, Michelob uh, dry bottles off the market. With the, fan, the special neck. Them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And put <laughs> match special dry in them. And then I, I got a letter from, from Budweiser's attorneys saying, you know, you can't do that. You know, we were buying them on a secondary market, so you can do whatever you want. But, you know, you don't want to get butt all pissed off at the time. No, you don't. The funny part of that story was I was in St. Louis. My wife's from St. Louis. And I was outside with my, my first son. And uh, we were kind of walking around. The neighbor came up. He had a little dog. And so he was petting my dog. And the guy looks at me. He goes, so where are you from? And I said, uh, Utica, New York. And he goes, home of FX Matt Brewing Company. I look at him and I go, how do you know that? And he goes, I'm the chief legal counsel for uh, Anheuser-Busch. I live right next to your in-laws. <laughs> so I, oh, I said to him, I said to him, well, I got kind of a nasty letter from you guys. And he said, just send it to me if we'd really like you to not use that bottle. And I said, we'll switch bottles. It's not worth it. He said, just how about you do it in the next three months? And then we moved on. That's so. too funny, man. Yeah, it was really cool. I had no idea that that type of ah, skullduggery is not the right word, but there's a there's a, a certain level of tradecraft there that you guys are yeah. getting up to. I did not know that that was, uh, that was part of the game back then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it was it was the little guys that were of buying course, bottles. Of course, yeah. You know, a new bottle in those days might have been, you know, a buck fifty, and you bought the used bottles for you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 cents a case. Yeah. And washing might cost you 70 cents, so you're getting them at half cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, that's so... No one did that with beer balls, though. You couldn't do that with beer no. balls. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were always plastic, right, Fred? They were never... Yeah. No, You never made them out of glass. That wouldn't work. They'd no. crack or whatever. No. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. So beer balls come to an end at FX Matt in what? Like we put it at the early 90s or so, Fred? Yeah, I'd say kind of 91. Yeah, yeah. And at what point does Saranac hit the scene for you guys? Saranac hit the scene in 1986. Okay, so it's really coming didn't on. Do, is, yeah, yeah, got it. Didn't do a lot until we won the Great American Beer Fest mm. in 92. And then we just leaned in and did voted best, voted best, voted best. And the real thing that changed uh, Saranac was we did a black and tan that did uh, just went bonkers the second we did it. And then right behind that, we did trail mix. That variety trail pack mix. that you were describing earlier. Yeah. 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 Saranac uh, trail mix variety pack was just explosive. Yeah. I mean, that thing was unbelievable. Wow. There's a little bit of symmetry there, though, right? Like as, as beer balls, you know, sort of have their heyday – uh, is a time when everyone else is doing light beer. Um, and so you guys find sort of a niche there. And then as beer balls sort of taper off for FX Matt, uh, well, guess what's coming on strong now is this Saranac, yep. uh, you know, line that you guys developed in house and are marketing, um, and the first sort of, uh, you know, big boom of the craft, you know, as we mentioned, the first uh, boom yeah. of the craft beer industry. So, and I, what I love about the trail mix uh, detail in particular is that's another packaging innovation. Yeah, so exactly. you go for one right to the other. Yeah. I said, I'd say that, you know, we did a product called Maximus Super, which was the first double strength beer out there. We did trail mix. We were the first American company to have a hard lemonade out, out in the United States. Uh, you know, we worked with Blue Moon. We worked with uh, 
Spike Seltzer. Yeah. We have, you know, we have, I think we as a company have reinvented ourselves more times over 135 years just because we have to. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. you know, if you keep evolving and you keep reinventing yourself, but keep delighting your customer, they keep coming back. And, you know, for the most part, obviously in the 80s, we weren't doing a very good job of delighting our customer and our business went like that. Mm. But, you know, really for most of our 136 years, we have delighted customers to the point that thankfully they keep coming back and and keep buying our products. Yeah, yeah. And you got the contract brewing piece of the puzzle there, which, yep, as you exactly. mentioned earlier in our conversation, is about 50, 50% of the volume yep. that you guys are doing, which yep. is a good place to be at a time like, yep. you know, at this moment in the market, right? There's always yeah. someone who needs tank space, even if it's not your brand. So if yep. you can run something else through there, that still works, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, Fred, reflecting on the, the beer ball sort of era, right? The, the mid seventies, all the way up through the late eighties and, and, uh, you know, to its conclusion in the early nineties. Um, I'm curious, like you obviously look back on it with fondness and obviously people love it. You've made a very good case for why it can't come back. You know, the, the dollars and cents of it, uh, you know, don't really pencil out as the accountants say, uh, do us a favor, you know, indulge us a little bit here on tap lines, take the other side of that argument. How would you bring it back? If, uh, you know, if you had to, if we said, all right, FX Mac got to, you know, everyone wants it. Everyone's clamoring for it. How do we make this thing work? I, I probably do half the size. Okay. Cause I think if you did it as a case and then, and then did the tap, you yep. know, did a mini beer ball the way we did it. I think you could do it. I think and so. Just I think miniaturize there, it, so man. to speak. Yeah. Oh man, it floats also. So yeah. you got a pool yeah. party vibe. Uh, yeah. I think you know mini kegs. I feel like you know the 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 kind of gimmicky keg that Heineken did and Newcastle did. Those never yeah. really gained traction. But people no. have people love a, especially beer drinkers. American beer drinkers love a gimmick, as you know, yeah. and especially one that functions. Uh, yeah. I I like the idea of cutting it in half. Uh, you know, reducing the volume by 50% and then taking this thing out to market. Obviously, just a thought experiment. You uh, you made a very strong case for why it's probably not the right move. But man, uh, if you ever do it, I would love to see one. And I you got you well, got we'll, at le- you got at least one sale, Fred. Uh, I'll look in to see if we can do half a ball. <laughs> yeah, there we go, man. Uh, Fred, Matt, uh, last sort of by way of wrapping up here. Uh, you mentioned the reinvention that FX Mac has to do again and again throughout its history. What's uh, what's the latest reinvention? I mean, listeners who are more tuned into the trade uh, know that FX Matt is making big moves uh, fairly recently with some tie ups and with some new products. Uh, what's the you know, if not beer balls, what uh, what else is going on at FX Matt? Well, I think a couple things. We we are very bullish on beer going forward and mm. so that we uh we just did a deal with flying dog yes which is a big brand in in maryland um and we are i think there's other opportunities in the beer space to add to the beers we make and keep them in our footprint so we become bigger within our footprint um i think that's one thing i think you know just see the innovation that we're working on i think there's a lot of space to play in non-alcoholic products um that there's a whole wide place there. We're into THC and CBD mm. with uh, Brooklyn and uh, New York Hemp Farm. We're doing this JV with Friday Beers. 
That's right. Um, I I think that whole JV space for us is a really interesting one because I think we can partner with other brands, other companies, um, and do things together. Our Right Coast Spirits is a was a partnership with is a partnership with Harpoon and was Flying Dog, but now we own Flying Dog, yep. so it's just us and Harpoon. And I think there's ways that that the guys in you know like us can do products across the country you know, like a Bright Coast Spirits or something, and you have partners in the Midwest and the in the you know, Rockies and California and just go right across the country with a product mm. that everybody's marketing the same product, but we're doing it in our territory. And it's, you know, JV that we all own part of, and there's some tie that we all have together. Um, that's a space I'm really interested in, and I think it's a real upside opportunity for us. I like that. We go from packaging innovation to start the conversation to uh, business structure innovation to close the conversation. I think that's a a good place to leave it, Fred. Uh, You talked about delighting your customers. You have certainly delighted this host of this podcast, and I'm sure you've delighted our listeners, too. Thanks again for coming on Taplines. It was Yeah, thank you. And any... Anytime. I love these things. <laughs> right on. Well, careful what you uh, what you promised, man. We're going to twist your arm to get you back on sooner rather well, than later. As I always say, I don't ever offer what I'm not willing to give <laughs> because I, don't, I have this fear of someone saying, yeah, let's do it. So when I say to people, you know, call me if you come to town, I'll have a beer. I, I mean it. Very good. I hope uh, someday uh, Tap Lines can do a live episode in Utica uh, at the FX. That would be great. At the FX Map Brewery. But until such time, uh, visions of beer balls will dance in our heads. Fred, Matt, thank you so much for joining Tap Lines, and, uh, and we'll see you again soon. Great. Thanks so much, Dave. All right. Tap Lines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you, listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>